Off the top in this hour, though, I want to talk about uh, humanity's long and complicated relationship with alcohol. George Bernard Shaw once put it, alcohol is the anesthesia by which we endure the operation of life. But the great philosopher uh, Homer Simpson once described alcohol as the cause of and solution to all of our problems. A new book uh, takes a look at the history of humanity's relationship with alcohol, but also makes the argument that it has played an important role, a key role even, in actually building civilization. Would we have civilization as we know it were it not for alcohol? And what is it about social animals and our desire for this, this drug, essentially, that really facilitates that so socialization? in addition to, obviously, the, the problems that it causes. This is all explored in a new book. It is called Drunk, How We Sipped, Danced, and Stumbled Our Way to Civilization. Joining us on the line is the author of uh, that book, which is certainly getting a lot of attention right now. Edward Slingerland is a distinguished university scholar, professor of philosophy at UBC, University of British Columbia. Dr. Slingerland, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. From your perspective, in, in terms of being, you know, curious about this and exploring this topic, what, what got you set on this path? Got you so interested in this? Well, my my day job is early Chinese philosophy, so that's what I'm actually trained in. And uh, I'm interested, my earlier work explored this focus in early Chinese philosophy on the power of spontaneity. So they want you to be in a state where you're relaxed and you're spontaneous, you're just responding to the world effortlessly. And they think if you can get into this state, you solve problems, you're more creative, people like you more, you get along with others. The problem they face, though, is that how do you, how do you try to be spontaneous? How do, you, how do you consciously try to be relaxed? And my earlier academic work looked at the various strategies they have for trying to get around this paradox, which is, a, as I explore in an earlier book of mine, trying not to try, this is a genuine cognitive paradox. The, when you're trying not to try, the part of your brain you're activating is actually the part you want to shut down. So it's really, <laughs> it's directly impossible to do. But it occurred to me, there's an early Taoist text at one point talks about a drunken person as an analogy of the sage, what it's like to be in the state of effortless action. And that kind of lit a light bulb in my head. I was like, oh, maybe actually one way around this tension is to use a chemical substance that is basically a kind of tool you can use to reach inside your brain and turn down your conscious mind a couple notches. And, and it, that got me started thinking about how cultures use alcohol as a tool and humans are pretty unique i mean you know there are examples of, of animals becoming intoxicated i've seen you know birds drunk on fermented berries etc but yeah you yeah. know this this relationship seeking out you know alcohol for that purpose it's, it's very unique to us can we actually pinpoint how far back do we have to go to find the first examples of this we've been producing and consuming alcohol as long as we've been doing anything in an organized fashion. So this, and this actually surprised me when I started doing my research on this. So we've been making alcohol probably about 20,000 years ago at least, and we have direct evidence as far back as 13,000 years ago. So before we had agriculture, we've been, we've been producing alcohol on a serious scale before we even figured out how to grow crops or settle down in large scale societies. 
And there's there's different components. As you say, there's the creativity side, which maybe we don't focus on as much. There's clearly the social side. And as, as social beings, uh, social animals, being drawn to a substance that further facilitates socialization, it, it's easy enough to, to see the link there. What, what do you suppose it is, then, in, in the minds of, of humans uh, that, that makes us drawn to this? Well, as you say, we're social animals, but we're... We're in a strange situation. We're primates. We're biologically primates. And so we're not adapted to live in really large groups. We primate, if you look at our relatives, like the chimpanzees, bonobos, uh, they live in pretty small groups. They're mostly related to one another, or at least they know one another. I'm, I'm sitting in downtown Vancouver right now and looking out at the city, and it Vancouver looks much more like a beehive or an ant colony than any kind of settlement that primates would live in. So we're a weird species in that we have primate biology, but we cooperate on a scale and with an intensity that looks a lot more like social insects. We look a lot more like ants or bees. And so it's hard to pull that off. <laughs> we're not, you know, it's, yeah. there's something in us that kind of uh, rebels against or, um, is resistant to the type of lifestyles we live in these these dense big communities and and what i argue is that alcohol is a tool alcohol was the motive for doing this so this is you know we've been told that alcohol was just a byproduct of having agriculture that we started growing crops and then later on we somehow figured out that if we left things sitting around they would ferment but the evidence now suggests it's the other way around. We actually started making beers and wines, and our motivation for settling down in large-scale societies and getting agriculture going was to get better beer and wine we, we, as grain came after, so the so-called beer before bread hypothesis. So alcohol motivated us to settle down for the first time. And then once we settled down, it also served conveniently served as a tool for helping us to to learn to cooperate and live with one another. So it uh, alcohol reduces our inhibitions. It makes it hard, easier for us to trust others. It makes us more trustworthy. And it also increases serotonin and endorphins, these kind of bonding hormones, mood hormones and bonding hormones. That, that make us feel part of a group and, and help us like and feel bonded to one another more. The quote about alcohol is, is the anesthesia of, of life or the anesthesia which we endure the operation of life. I mean, how, how big a factor is that? I mean, without sounding overly dramatic, I mean, a lot of human existence has been kind of miserable in, in a lot of ways. How, how does that play into the, the role that alcohol has? That's something I talk about at the end of the book. That can't be, so the central puzzle that the book is about is why do humans like to drink? And and the superficial answer is, well, it makes us feel good, but the, that's not very helpful because then the question is, why does it make us feel good? And in other words, why did evolution, why does evolution continue to allow it to make us feel good? And so the answer can't just be pleasure because alcohol is so costly it's physiologically costly, it, it harms our liver, it raises our cancer risk. It is uh, sociologically costly in a lot of ways. Um, a lot, 
significant portion of the population is prone to alcoholism. And, and if you were prone to alcoholism, you can't use alcohol safely. It's really uh, becomes a huge problem for you and your family and your community. So there's got to be some benefits, some functional benefits of alcohol. And that's what I spend most of the book talking about is enhanced creativity, sociality. At the, at the end of the book, I do talk about this issue of just pleasure. So one of the things alcohol does is it reduces our self-monitoring. So we're, constant, we're conscious. We're conscious beings. And so we're constantly thinking about the future. We're analyzing the past. We're worrying about how we're going to respond to things. It is pleasurable for us to be released from that, what's sometimes called the curse of the self for a short period of time, or, or to take a little vacation from the self. And so in addition to all the functional benefits of alcohol, as, as individuals, it's just pleasurable for us to sometimes be released from the, the burden of being constantly conscious about things. Yeah. And I think it's, it's indisputable that, that alcohol has shaped civilization, but you know, part of the argument you're making is that it's, it's much more than that, that it, it is really allowed for civilization as we know it to, to exist, that it actually deserves a, a lot of credit for that. So to, to what extent then would we credit alcohol with, with building? Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market civilization as we know well quite literally we we created civilization in order to more effectively get drunk so we <laughs> the reason we settled down and started growing crops and living in communities seems to be because we were motivated by getting intoxicated making beer not bread and it's not just in the so this is in the levant and the fertile crescent uh if you look around the world you see the same pattern so if you look at south america the first domesticated crop is maize or corn. And this comes from a wild ancestor called Teosinte. And people have pointed out that Teosinte makes terrible grain. So if you were interested in finding a plant and domesticating it in order to make tortillas, you would overlook this plant because it doesn't make very good grain. What it, what it does make is really good beer. And that this is still, um, they still make a, an alcoholic beverage called chicha in Central and South America from maize. So it's, it seems to be the case that people first started focusing on this plant and get interested in domesticating it because they were making alcohol out of it. Uh, it's, it's probably the case that agriculture first started in North America, so people first started cultivating crops in order to get tobacco and hallucinogens that they used in the, the social drug that they employed in North America. So there's a very literal sense in which the drive to get intoxicated is what motivated us to settle down. And then once we settled down, it gave us these, these important tools. So it, uh, alcohol enhances individual and group creativity, which helps us with innovation, creating new tools, new solutions to problems. And it also helps us to feel connected to other people beyond our relatives and, and people we interact with on a daily basis. Um, and that's important too. We need to be able as humans to create a group identity 
that goes beyond the, the, the limits that we normally experience as primates. And there are a lot of tools we use for this. Religion is also another cultural tool, I've argued in some previous work. But alcohol certainly, certainly helps as well. Well, I mean, religion and alcohol, that's a complicated relationship in and of itself. But, I mean, it speaks to the other side of it, where over the years there have been forces that have been aligned against uh, alcohol, a puritanical in a literal sense, but in a religious sense, even more uh, more recently in, in kind of a, that, that sort of health puritanical sense. Uh, that That's mm -hmm. obviously never really stuck or prevailed, but um, do you think it ever can or will? Are we just too, uh, too attached to, uh, to alcohol? Well, the relationship between religion and alcohol is complicated. So you're, you're tending to think of re relatively recent prohibitionist movements. Right. But if yeah. you want to think about uh, Christianity, uh, wine and Christianity are joined at the very beginning, right? It's mm -hmm. at the center of the wine is the center of the Eucharist, the most important ritual. Christianity, uh, as I talk about in the conclusion to the book, uh, in the New Testament, the, the first miracle that Jesus performs is not... What I, when I was thinking about this, I was like, is it walking on water or raising the dead? It's turning water into wine. That's right. the first thing Jesus does as a miracle. And um, it's a great story, actually. The, the, he's at a wedding, and they've run out of wine, and his mother's like, this is a disaster. <laughs> so he, he doesn't want to perform a miracle yet because he doesn't want to relieve, reveal who he is, but he's, he's forced to because of this emergency of running out of wine. So wine has been at the center of Christianity and other religions around the world from the very beginning. Um, it has been sometimes uh, uh, involved in prohibitionist movements, and you really see this in religions like Islam yep. that at a certain point prohibit uh, alcohol. So people have been trying to, alcohol is useful, it's got these important functions, it's also super dangerous. It's dangerous physiologically, if it's used improperly it can be very dangerous. So people have been trying to prohibit alcohol consumption as long as we've been consuming alcohol. You see this in ancient China, you have prohibitionists saying, you know, anyone who drinks alcohol is going to be put to death. And, and yet the Chinese kept drinking. It didn't, didn't work very well. Um, so prohibition, one of the puzzles I'm trying to explain in the book is why prohibition has not really succeeded. Uh, it never took off in China. It failed in North America. In Islam, it's been applied very spottily. So it different. some of the, the best wine poetry we have comes from uh, uh, Islamic Persia. So Persian poets writing them, celebrating the, the power of wine. Mm -hmm. So it's hard, it's hard to get prohibition off the ground. And it's not, I think what I'm arguing is it's not just because people like it so much that they resist prohibition. It's that there are functional benefits to alcohol and so groups that are successful in, in imposing prohibition on their, their members of their group suffer uh, losses, functional losses in other way. And that's why if, if alcohol really were just a kind of brain parasite, which is what we've been told from a scientific perspective, you'd expect that prohibitionist groups would very quickly outcompete all other cultural groups. And yet that, that obviously hasn't happened. No, very, very much not so. Uh, we got to leave it there, unfortunately. The book is called Drunk, How We Sipped, Danced, and Stumbled Our Way to Civilization. Edward Sligan, thank you so much for the conversation here today. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. All the best.